You can take your Bibles and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and if you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love to put one in your hand. Our ushers are walking down, and they'll walk towards the back. They'll put a Bible in your hand. If you just slip your hand up in the air, it'll get across to you, and if you don't own a copy of God's Word, just keep this. We want to give you a copy of God's Word. We trust it will be a a blessing to you um, as it continues to address the, the needs of your heart and the needs of your life. That's what we've been experiencing as we've been marching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the comment I've been getting incredibly frequently is that people have um, not understood how important the book of Ecclesiastes is and how much it would minister to their own heart. And uh, I hope that that's you this morning. And if it's not, uh, be prepared to be confronted by the Word of God this morning because the Word of God is going to go after something that is really relevant and always has been to the human heart. And that is the issue of money and possessions. So if you want to leave, you better leave now because it's about to get rough. (laughs) You know, when it comes to money, especially in our culture, but I think this has been true um, for all people of all times, people want to get rich quick, don't they? People love the idea of not having to work too hard or at least being able to accumulate wealth and possessions rapidly. They believe in many ways that money is the answer to all of life's problems. That's the way the human heart often lives, and it's fleshed out in a variety of ways in our lives. We want to win the lottery. We want to find out maybe that we've come into some kind of huge and maybe unexpected inheritance. Wouldn't that be nice someday? We want to get in on the next business venture, stock market explosion, investment opportunity, always listen, always searching for more, always searching for the next thing, what's going to allow me to strike it rich, quick? Where's the rainbow that's leading me to the pot of gold? It's even crept into Christianity in the form of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel where preaching promotes this idea that it is God's design that you would be happy, healthy, and wealthy. It is the sign of God's blessing and favor upon your life if you have all of those things in spades. And they have all kinds of schemes developed to get you rich, and it usually requires you to give them most of your money. Somebody's getting rich quick. But you see, there's a craving in the human heart for wealth. There is a craving embedded in the human heart for riches. The same was true in the ancient world and the preacher himself. If this is Solomon, he had wealth and riches beyond our wildest imaginations. People flocked from all over the world not only to hear his wisdom and to see his accomplishments, but to marvel at his great wealth. It's really interesting that the flow of the book of Ecclesiastes has us here dealing with the topic of money and wealth right after it is dealt, if you were here last week, with the topic of hypocrisy and how we often try to approach God and the way we try and flaunt ourselves to others, those external realities we want to use to mask the lack of an inner relationship with God. You say, why why does money issues follow so quickly on the heels of hypocrisy in the book of Ecclesiastes? Here's why. Because the heart of hypocrisy is a divided heart. It's divided affections. It's a heart that is split in terms of its allegiance and its worship. And the New Testament speaks so often of this. In fact, Jesus Christ himself goes after the topic of money in the human heart more than he goes after the topic of any other sin issue. 
the rich young ruler who walks up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is met with the call to keep all the commandments. And when he proudly boasts that he has done all these things from his youth, the response of Jesus is good. Now go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. To which this young man walks away sad because he had much wealth, many possessions. You see, his heart was divided. His allegiance was divided. His worship was not pure and true. Jesus said it like this, you cannot serve both God and money, right? You can't serve two masters. You're going to love the one and hate the other. You're going to hate the one and you're going to love the other. That's the way it works when it comes to money and possessions. It so often grips our heart in such a unique and profound way and divides us from true and pure worship to the one who deserves it most. Paul said it like this, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to go through an, eye of, through an eye of an eagle than for a rich man to get into heaven. This isn't an indictment against wealth and money in general. This is an indictment against the heart's love of money and the distraction it can be from enjoying true and pure worship. You see, a healthy view of money is one of the clearest signs of a healthy view of a relationship with God. Money is talked about so much because it's such a clear indicator, it often is, of where your heart is with God, how much you truly love God. The, the more you focus on money and possessions, the less you're focused on God. There's a catch here, though, I, I want you to see. You see, the Bible actually does call us to get rich quick. The Bible wants us to experience wealth and riches. The Bible calls us to enjoy wealth and riches. But it calls us first and foremost to be rich toward God. To store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. And so the call for us this morning is really to try to get rich quick, but to get rich the right way, to get rich with the right treasures, to have our hearts gripped in an undivided way by what truly brings enjoyment in life. So here's the hope for you and I. You can get rich quick. So if you came this morning thinking, well, this is going to be hard. Listen, there's a lot of hope here, and there's a lot of joy to be found in this message this morning. You can get rich quick. Everybody should be giving a healthy amen to that. You can. In fact, the call for the Christian life is you must get rich quick. You must get rich quick. It is imperative. If you want to enjoy this life, if you want to flourish and thrive in this life, you must learn to get rich quick. Now, don't run away with that too far. Let's dig into this together. The Word of God says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we'll begin together at verse 10. We'll read all the way to the end of chapter 6, a big chunk of text, but there's, there's two stories here that are going to paint for us a very similar pictures. And right in the middle, really the heart of this text, we're going to see what God is calling us to. And notice this in verse 10. It says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When good increases, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owners to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. 
As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as, uh, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart." There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that his stillborn child is better off than he." For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. This whole section is really tied together with this dominating theme of money and possessions and ultimate satisfaction. This has been one of the dominant themes throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. What do we look for for satisfaction? And if it is material wealth, then the scripture has a word for us this morning. It wants to confront that but it wants to call us to get rich quick in a better way, in a true way, in a biblical way. But if I want to get rich quick, then you need to do this first. Listen, my heart affections must be regularly assessed. This passage actually is designed in a way to help us assess our hearts, to determine if we are financially healthy and then therefore spiritually healthy, at least in part. The pictures that are given on both ends of this passage of these two men who seem to have so much but find so little enjoyment are to be a mirror for us. They're supposed to be a reflection for us. We're supposed to look into this and ask the question, is this me and and is my heart the same as the heart of these men, these individuals? Our hearts need to be regularly assessed. We need to become experts at assessing our own hearts with the word of God, finding out what's driving them. And and notice here that the goal of, of this sermon, listen, is to get at the affections of the heart. Because love of money is an issue of the affections of the heart. 
Materialism is an issue of the affections of the heart. It is going after what we love, what we treasure, what we cherish. As we march through this, this first section, I want to ask four questions that help us identify um, whether or not our hearts are healthy when it comes to money. Here's how we're going to assess our hearts. Four questions. The first one is this. Am I self-serving? When it comes to money, when it comes to possessions, when it comes to work, here's the question you need to ask. This is the heart question. Am I self-serving? Is what I'm doing all about me and getting myself ahead and getting money into my pockets and my prosperity? This is an issue of the heart, and it begs this question, am I self-serving? Now, he begins this passage in verses uh, 8 and 9, and he calls us to look at this. I I skipped this when I read it. I apologize. Um, Let's read it again. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. Now, this first picture that's given to us is really a picture of a self-serving individual and individuals. It describes actually a system of selfishness, a system of injustice and oppression. You'll notice there that it's fleshed out in the context of a, a government. And the oppression of the poor, those who are forced to labor and to work while somebody else uses them to get money in their own pockets. And a lot of understanding these first few verses depends upon how you understand this word watched. You'll notice that there are people who are watching other people, people who are are higher on the totem pole in the pecking order. They're higher up and they're watching down below. Now, you may be inclined to look at this and say, well, they're watching so that they can keep account, people accountable for how they're treating others. But that actually goes against what the, the gist of this text, the sense of this text is hinting at. You see, the point is this, that there is this hierarchy that evolves in culture where there are people who are higher up who are watching others and they're seeing their prosperity and looking down and saying, how can I use their prosperity to get more prosperity for me? And the higher you get, the more and more people are inclined to do this. And and here's what I want you to see. The text says to us this morning, listen, if this is surprising to you, it shouldn't be. Did you notice what it says there? Do not be amazed at the matter. In other words, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is telling us, listen, that this is normal, sinful human existence. This is life outside of Eden in a world that exists under the sun apart from God. Don't be surprised when people want to come along and use you to get ahead. Don't be surprised when people want to oppress you to get more money in their pockets. Don't be surprised when people want to cheat you so that they can get further ahead. And by the way, don't be surprised if you try to do it to others as well. It's part of the human heart, the sinful human heart. I mean, I don't know about you, but I am no longer surprised when I get an email from a Nigerian prince telling me that they desperately need money, right? I'm not surprised by that anymore. And the issue here is it's not if you're like, yeah, all government is evil. That's not what this passage is saying. It's an illustration. It's an illustration that's being used. And yes, even in good governments, there can be lots of corruption. We know that firsthand. We see it all over the world. 
It's no surprise to us, but this is here, listen, it's not a government problem. It's not a corporation problem, as if corporations themselves were evil. It's a human problem. That's the issue he's going after here. It is a sinful human heart problem. And the heart of the problem is self-serving greed. That's the issue here. Using and abusing people, and even where there can be some benefit, and maybe in a sense, yes, the whole benefit because there's work provided, but yes, at the same time, there is greed that has infected so much of the way we operate with one another when it comes to money and possessions. Greed is often cultivated and fostered. When getting more for ourselves becomes our ultimate goal, and money inevitably becomes our God, we will hurt others, we will ignore others, we will be inclined to deceive others, to manipulate others, we will be inclined to rob others. When we think of government, oftentimes um, our hearts are frustrated and angry, maybe this time of the year especially, tax season, you're reminded about how much the government is taking from you, and, and how often do we think, man, the government is just so greedy, aren't they? And yet we fail to see sometimes in making those statements how greedy our heart is in the process. Sins like jealousy and covetousness, they spring from greed. And the Bible warns us to be aware of greed at the heart level. It calls us to be aware. Jesus gives stern warnings about the danger of greed in the human heart. He said, why, why would he do that and not give such stern warnings against other sins? Here's why. Because greed is so subtle. It sneaks in. It's less obvious than other sins. It's one of those sins, again, that's respectable, that we so often overlook. I can't tell you the last time somebody came to me to confess the sin of greed. We have a lot of sins that we wrestle with, but greed is not one that we easily, easily diagnose in our own hearts. And interestingly, it's so subtle, it's often camouflaged as actually being a good thing. Greed can often have the veneer of looking good, and, and we, we see this in a variety of ways in our lives. Like, like, we just can't pass up a good deal, right? Like, oh, it was on sale. I had to get it. It was on sale. I couldn't pass up the deal. Or, or I had coupons, right? You seen those coupon clippers? Like, if you're, st- listen, if you- nobody needs a thousand rolls of toilet paper, I don't care how good the coupon is. You have a greed problem or you have a doctor problem. You got to go check that out. It's really, it could be serious. Or we just have to have the best of everything and we make excuses because, you know, higher quality, it's going to last longer. Look, there's, there's hints of truth in all of these things that I understand, but, but I think we need to be careful that oftentimes we're not trying to simply mask a deeper heart-level greed that has infected us and we can't see it. Be on guard, the scriptures say. It's so subtle. It's not in your face and obvious for most people. It's veiled. Your affections and mine are often very self-serving. And what this text calls us to consider first is that question, am I self-serving when it comes to money and possessions? Do I matter most in the equation? Secondly, ask this question, am I self-satisfied? Here's how you know that money has really got a grip on your heart. Because you've got to this place where you believe that you can get enough to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Your effort, your work, Your pursuits, 
the things that you can accumulate because of them. You see, I, I've done it. I've made it. I've got what I need. And in verse 10, he says these words, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Again, just notice the word that's used there. Circle this in your Bible. He who loves money. This is the issue. Is this something that you love, that you treasure, that you cherish? Because if it is, you will not be satisfied by it. Love of money and satisfaction are so tightly linked here because we believe deep down that money really is the answer to our problems. Money is the thing that's going to satisfy us. Possessions, if I just had different or better or new, then I'll finally be satisfied or I'll be more fully satisfied than I was when I had nothing. Let me give you a definition of of self-satisfaction. I looked this up this week, and here's here's the definition of self-satisfaction. This is interesting. Excessively and unwarrantedly satisfied with oneself or one's achievements, and here's this, listen, smugly complacent. I've done it, or I can do it. If I get it, if I I can do it, listen, here's the reality, I don't need anyone or anything else. Me, I'm the answer here. And the love of money here proves to be an insatiable desire. It will never fully be met. It can never fully be met. The more you have, the more you want. That's what it's describing here, right? This is the person who loves money. They they get some, and just when they think they've had enough, it's not quite enough. You know, the famous quote from John D. Rockefeller, um, right? He was once as the richest man on earth at his time. Even by today's standards, he would have been one of the richest men on earth. He was once asked, how much money is enough? And his answer, listen, it captures the human heart so well, just a little bit more. The harder you fight for it, the more trapped you become by it. It's like sinking sand, Author Jesse O'Neill has diagnosed the spiritual problem as affluenza. I like that. Affluenza, and here's how um, it's defined. An unhealthy relationship with money or the pursuit of wealth. And here's the reality. Listen, church, listen. We live in Western culture. We live in in a very affluent culture where materialism drives so much of what we see and what we do. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, have at least a mild case of affluenza. That's why, listen, that's why we feel a sudden pang of discontent when we realize that we can't afford something. Or the guilt that we feel when we bought something that we know we can't afford. When we drive ourselves in debt to keep up with the Joneses, to have what we think will satisfy only to find out that it can't provide what it promises. The appetite for what money can buy is never satisfied because, listen, self-satisfaction is not possible. We are not designed to be able to find satisfaction in the things we can pursue and acquire and do for ourselves. It's something outside of us that we are called to. Third question here as we're diagnosing and assessing our own hearts is this, am I self-focused? And you'll notice the key word in all these phrases, right? It's self. Am I self-focused? Verse 11 says this, when goods increase, They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his own eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
the picture here is of a person who loves money because he really loves self. He loves the things he can acquire in many ways because he loves the statement it makes about himself. Look at my possessions. Look at the things I can look at with my eyes. Look at the pleasure I can derive and look how everybody else is going to view me as a result of it. You see, the more we love money, the more we become bent in on ourselves. People who love money are some of the most self-focused individuals on the face of the planet. They're obsessed with themselves, and the more money people can, can often, this is a general axiom, the more money they have, the more self-obsessed they tend to become because the more self-importance they gain from it, they think they've accomplished something. It gives them a sort of sense of power. They're self-indulgent. I mean, I love how literature in, in a variety of forms paints these pictures for us. It captures the essence of the human heart in a variety of forms. And, and, and again, I, 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 just, I, think, I think of the self-focused individual, the person who has something and all of a sudden the focus becomes more and more about themselves. And all my mind runs to is, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings and, and the Hobbit. And I think of Gollum, right? If you, you think of Gollum, if you know the story, right, he's got the ring of power. And the ring of power is the supreme possession of all. Right? If you have it, you have everything. And Gollum, who was once a normal individual, a normal Hobbit, I mean, guess individual, He gets the ring of power and he begins to obsess over it so much so, listen, that it begins to distort everything he is. It changes not just his, his heart affections, it doesn't change just what he loves, it changes his very appearance. Everything about him becomes absorbed with getting more and having and holding on to. He calls it his precious, it's mine, and anybody who tries to take it from him risks death. When uh, Bilbo finally gets the ring from him, all the way towards the end of the Lord of the Rings, you see the same pattern developing in him. Do you notice that theme? It's gripping his heart. It has a pull in his heart. It's pulling him away from even his closest friends. He's becoming self-absorbed. He can't even get rid of it and destroy the ring. He has to have his finger cut off at the very end. Sorry to spoil it. If you haven't seen it by now, that's your fault. See, the more you have, the more prone you are to think more highly of yourself. And here is a picture who is thinking very, a person who is thinking very highly of themselves, and yet it is not to their own advantage. You'll notice the contrast, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You see, he can't sleep. He's constantly obsessed about what he has, what he possesses, who's going to try and take it, how should I invest it, how consumed they become with their possessions because ultimately, listen, they become consumed with themselves. It becomes your identity and it then begins to produce mounting anxiety Significant insecurity. These are, biblically speaking, the inevitable byproducts of greed in the human heart. Why? Again, listen, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. That's, that's not saying you can't have much. It means if you do, you need to be protected and guarded in your own heart. You need to be careful because the heart can drift here so quickly and subtly. The more you think about it, the more you worry about it, the more you stress about money. Listen, some of you may have very little today, but this is actually describing you, and you need to hear this today. 
You obsess about money. You think about it constantly. You can't get your mind off it. You believe if you had more of it, everything would be solved. That's the kind of individual that the preacher is going after. And here's what you will find. Listen, your sleep will not be sweeter if you gain more because your heart is in turmoil. Your heart is misguided. The affections of your heart are more for yourself and for money than you realize. And if your heart is divided, God will not allow you to find the rest that you seek in the things that you seek it in. Lastly, here's the question you can ask to assess your heart. Am I self-sufficient? Am I self-sufficient? Here he gives kind of a parable, and he says, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, and he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away it in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, and in anger. You see, it ends up having the adverse effect. Here is the one who is self-sufficient, the one who has put their hope in their riches and their wealth, the one who has put it all on the line because they believe that that is where their hope is going to be found, and in the end, they lost it all. This is a picture of somebody who stockpiles, somebody who collects and gathers and more and more and more and eventually ends up on the show hoarders. Now, there is a difference between saving and hoarding. Saving is biblically wise. It is commended in the book of Proverbs, but hoarding is foolish, fear-based stockpiling. Hoarding comes from the belief that somehow having is going to give hope. The belief that I can get more money than I, again, I can solve my problems. I can finally feel content and secure and stable. You see the picture there? The stability that I believe money can provide. That's hope, a firm foundation. But the problem is this. You don't know if you could lose it in a moment like this individual here. They take it all. They're so wealthy. They're so rich. They, they give it all. They lose it all. And now they have nothing even to pass on to their own children when they die. You see the picture here is out of shame. Somebody who's put their hope in the wrong thing and they end up, listen, in a place of shame, not in a place of joy. You're self-sufficient if you believe that you're in control of your own fate. That somehow you can ultimately even control your resources the way you want and that it could never be affected. But you are not sufficient enough to prevent or predict the future. That's part of the point of this passage. You have no ability to control economic downturns. You have no ability to control government interference, unmet expectations that you may have, nor can you control your own death and calamity that you may experience in this life. And in the vanity of your own selfish pursuit of meaning, you may find yourself left alone and angry instead of filled with joy and happiness. Now remember... What he describes here is life under the sun. That's part of his goal. And he's calling us to evaluate our lives and to assess what's really going on under the sun apart from God and that it's possible, listen, even here this morning, you need to hear this, that while you claim to know God, maybe even you truly do, you are actually living life under the sun. It's very possible. 
You know the one who's above the sun, but you've chosen to live your life as if he doesn't exist. You're just living life as if you are God. And the question that this text is forcing us to ask is this, who is at the center of your universe? Who's at the center of your financial aspirations and affections? Is it you? Is self-dominating in all of these pictures of your life? And the call here is to assess your heart. And you say, I'm not sure if it's me. Uh, I'm, not, I'm wrestling right now with my heart. Here's, here's just a free tip for you. Ask your friends and families if they think you have a problem with money and possessions. Ask your friends and family, the ones who are close to you, if they believe that you may love your money and possessions more than you realize. Ask if they think you're too focused on yourself and your possessions and see what they say. Be honest with yourself even this morning. Listen, what what do your habits tell you about yourself? What do your financial habits, your spending habits tell you about yourself and about your own heart? What are your thought patterns revealing this morning when you think about money, when you think about more? Listen, the call right now is not to think about somebody else, okay? It's not to be thinking, I know know somebody who's got a real money problem. The call right now is to be thinking about yourself. Do you have a money problem? Is there a problem with the affections of your heart? Because if there is, then a diagnosis can be found today. If you can acknowledge it and if you can confess that, if you can repent of that, you can find what this passage is leading us to, which is hope, a better and true source of riches. One author said this, if anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. And you see the call here is to not leave empty this morning, it is to be filled up with the riches that are found only in one place, the source of all riches, God himself. Notice the second point here, my heart affections must be constantly adjusted. If you can assess your heart and you can identify where you may have some affection issues towards money and possessions, then you can have your heart adjusted properly. And here's the good news. In verses 18 through 20, really the the heart of this passage, we see a picture of how our heart can be adjusted in a proper way. And that enjoyment actually is possible and encouraged, even even enjoying money and possessions. The answer um, to money problems is not to get rid of all your money. That's not the point. It's not to seek poverty. That is not more noble than being wealthy. The issue is your attitude towards money. That's what he's calling it to. He's calling us for an affection adjustment. You see, money isn't evil. The love of it is. So if your affections are adjusted, if they're moved away from money and self, then there is hope. So the question again is adjusted towards what or to whom? And the answer here is God. 18 through 20 just gives us, you'll notice, God hasn't even been mentioned up till this point, but all of a sudden, in just a a few verses, it's mentioned a handful of times. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given For this is his lot. Everyone else to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The key word in this section, if you missed it, is God. And when God is brought into your worldview, it begins to change everything. It begins to adjust every part of your life. The reality of God constantly adjusts our hearts 
affections away, listen, from money and possessions and worldly pursuits towards what truly matters and is found in him. And our hearts, they desperately need a constant God-centered adjustment. We need to be jolted, listen, out of the worldly perspectives we unknowingly embrace and the worldly attitudes that we have allowed to seep into our sin-sick hearts. So in these three verses, let me just identify three principles that will help you adjust your heart even this morning. The first one is this, found in verse 18, money is a provision, not a provider. Money is a provision, not a provider. You'll notice uh, again in verse 18 there, he talks about enjoying the things that money can buy. And the point is this, that there is things that money can provide for us. Good things, necessary things, right things, things above and beyond even what we need into the want category. But you'll notice here that all these things that we have, God has given us. Whatever you have, whatever provisions God has given you, listen, it it is from him. They are not the ones that provided it for themselves. You have not provided it ultimately for yourself. God is the one who has given it to you. He is the ultimate provider. And if we have that principle in mind when we look at money and possessions, we realize that money is not meant to be either demonized or deified. We don't need to hate it and despise it, but we certainly shouldn't be worshiping it and praising it. It helps adjust our affections to see that we are called to fix our gaze not on the provision itself, but on the one who has provided it. And if your eyes can be fixed upon the one who has given those things to you, you can actually begin to enjoy them the way he has designed for you to enjoy them. The second principle there in verse 19 is this, money is a gift, not a gain. Again, it's provision, but I want you to see this too. It's a gift. It's not something, in other words, that you deserve or have somehow earned. I mean, you weren't good enough. You didn't do enough where God just said, you know what, okay, you've been working pretty hard. I guess I'll give you a little more. He's not equating his blessings in your life to how hard you necessarily work. There are plenty of people in this life and in this room who are working their tail off, yet their bank account doesn't necessarily demonstrate it to the world. Verse 19 reminds us, listen, of the sovereignty of God. Everyone also, listen to this, to whom God has given. Like God has allotted to each person what he sees fit and right. And to some, he has given lots of wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. There, there is a, an enjoyment that can come from the things that God has given, again, that is not wrong or sinful when we have our hearts adjusted the right way. When we see money as a gift from the sovereign God who has bestowed it upon us all because of his grace, not something that we believe we deserve and have gained because of our own merit. When you see that what God has given you, if it's a lot or if it's a little, listen, you can be satisfied and you can find enjoyment because what he has given you isn't the end all and be all. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about this issue as being one of contentment. Instead of trying to control the circumstances of your life and make sure that you can get what you believe you deserve, again, that's money is gain. He calls us to a place of contentment And he refers to it as a blessed detachment. I love that language. Like contentment is a blessed detachment from the things of the world. I mean, it's this blessed detachment that says, you know what? I have more than enough. God has been so good to me. God has graciously provided for me. And God has given me what I need today. And I can rejoice in that. 
I don't need to be in this relentless pursuit of more. I don't need to be feeling like I'm constantly a hamster trapped in a wheel, running harder, harder, and harder, exhausted, anxious, worried, consumed, obsessed. You see, your sense of self-worth and meaning and faith do not depend on your bank balance. Contrary to what this world wants to preach to you, your identity need not be wrapped up in the numbers in your bank account. And if we understand that money is a gift and not a gain, then we realize that it is a tool to be used, not a treasure to be hoarded. It's a means and not an end. The third principle here to help adjust our hearts is this, that money is a pointer, not a priority. And again, these are really interwoven. All of these principles are, but, but see them for what they are, a call to adjust your heart. Verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I love the picture here. Listen, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, listen, you wanna know what a, a life well lived is? The person who is not so obsessed with money and possessions because they're so obsessed with God. They don't seek joy in the things of this world. They seek joy in God. And you see all enjoyment, all enjoyment, money, possessions, wealth, riches, jobs, authority, power, all the things that you can enjoy in this world. Listen, every one of them is a gift from God and we ought to be thankful for it, but every one of them is a pointer towards a greater joy. It's meant, yes, for you to experience some temporary joy here and now. Our Father loves to give good gifts to His children. But you want to know what our Father loves to do in giving His good gifts to His children? Loves to call them back and point them to Him, the giver of all good and perfect gifts. He wants to redirect our hearts. He wants us to look beyond the things of this world, to not find full enjoyment here, but to find full enjoyment in Him. You want to know what the secret to finding contentment in life is? Super simple. Listen, church, super simple. But grasp this, and and I'm telling you, your life will be filled with so much joy. It is being able to depend upon and enjoy God. That's it. Like That sounds too easy. No, it's simple. It's not always easy. This verse, these verses are showing us that a person's heart is to be occupied with God and not money. And if we fix our eyes on money and possessions, God will not allow us to find true joy. Do you hear that here? Like if that's where you're going, guess what? God will not allow you. He is the one who allows you even to experience joy. And our culture misses this, but listen, so many of us are missing this. So many of you, listen, you've put your hope in stuff. You've put your hope in money. You've put your hope in advancing yourself. You've trusted it to provide you with joy and satisfaction when it actually can't. It can only point us to fix our eyes and our hearts on something greater, something better, the ultimate source of satisfaction that each one of us longs for and craves. And it requires us to replace the man-centered theology that often dominates our sinful, fallen human condition and to adopt instead a God-centered theology that we so desperately need. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see, enjoyment doesn't come from setting your heart on the things you have, but in setting them on the one who has so graciously given them to you. So if I want to get rich quick, here's lastly what we need to do. My heart affections must be consistently aligned. 
adjusted, broken from the, the patterns that we had established, and now fully aligned with what God calls us to find our satisfaction and joy in. And really, verse 1 through 12 is a statement, a story, a parable of a person who finds not the greatest enjoyment in God, but again, seeks it in the things of this world. It, it really is just a rehashing of what we've already looked at. The person who finds the greatest enjoyment in life is the one who knows God and has a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's the person who finds the greatest enjoyment in this life. And again, the picture in these final verses, they emphasize the endless, exhausting pursuit of meaning and joy and satisfaction apart from God, life under the sun. And they ultimately, listen, as Ecclesiastes is doing, it's driving us back to him. And I want to really create here a contrast. As we look at this individual, it's just rehashing again what we've seen. I want to create a contrast with where this book points us towards the New Testament and the fulfillment of all true joy in Christ. You see, self must be replaced with Christ if we're to experience true joy and enjoy the possessions and riches that God even gives us in an earthly sense. But the result in replacing self with Christ is this, it is getting rich toward God. Ecclesiastes has been pointing us all along towards Jesus. And so if we just take the framework of assessing our heart in the first point, and we now kind of flip it or contrast it with what the New Testament, the Word of God calls us to, here's what we find. Listen, if you want your heart affections consistently aligned, then this first, I must be Christ-serving. I can't be self-serving. I must be Christ-serving. He says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is a vanity and is a grievous evil. Here again, this is the pursuit of of more and enjoyment apart from God. So what happens? How do we then enjoy this? God must be injected into the equation. This is the man who is self-serving, who likely used people to get ahead, who had everything that he could possibly want and yet found in the end that it did not give him the thing he longed for. He sought to serve himself and he came up empty. God gives, even here, even to the one who can't enjoy it. There there is this recognition that God has sovereignly given it. And the point here is that it's supposed to point him to the greater source of enjoyment. The idea that God gives here, by the way, as well, even to this man, reminds us that every one of us will be held accountable to what God gives us. Financially, do you realize that? You will be held accountable for what God has financially given to you. And so often, God doesn't give us enjoyment because we do not use it to serve him. We use it to serve ourselves. We use it as a means to find enjoyment instead of pointing us back to the enjoyment we find in him. Listen to what Matthew 6, 24 says. Let me remind you of the words of Jesus. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money can't serve it and it can't serve you, not ultimately. You must serve God and you must serve him especially with your money. This is why Jesus follows this in Matthew 6, 32 through 33 and he says these, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 
Did you hear what Jesus is saying? Listen, the pursuit of money isn't the goal here. The pursuit of the kingdom of God is. Serving God is the goal of your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Using all that he's given to you, your time, your treasures, your talents, for him and for the advancement of his kingdom. Wealth then can be viewed like this. Listen, riches that God gives you are primarily a kingdom tool. Yes, to be enjoyed. Yes, you can have good things and nice things. That's not a problem. But primarily here, wealth is a kingdom tool. And the more God gives you, the more accountable you will be held to God for how you use it to advance his kingdom. What does this look like in my life? How do I know that I am Christ serving with my finances? Here it is, really simply. Listen, here it is really quick. You want to write this down? It's really going to be helpful. I display more generosity. That's how. That's one of the key marks of somebody who, listen, has money, but money doesn't have them. They hold onto it loosely. They give it away freely. They realize it's been given to them by God to be used for him and for his purposes. And so they don't have to hoard it. They can hand it out. I love that. We have so much of that in this church, and it is so encouraging to see how God has blessed some people, even in this church, in this room, with so many resources, but to watch them just use their money, listen, in ways that some of you will never know and never see, and which is fine with God, by the way. But how God just is blessing people with resources, and they're just using it with generosity to advance the kingdom, to support the work of the ministry here, to help those in need in the life of this church, to serve and to give their money to missions work that's happening all over the world. People in this room are doing that. And listen, the call for us is to be a people like this, Christ serving with our resources. More generosity, more generosity. Secondly, notice this, my heart affections are consistently aligned And if that's going to happen, I must be Christ satisfied. You don't get generous with your resources unless you're satisfied in Christ. Verses 3 through 6, he says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. I mean, just get, the, just get the gist of what he's saying here. Listen, you can have everything. I mean, children are a blessing from the Lord, right? Contrary to what our culture believes. We've embraced this principle in our church. Right? Some of you more than others. But in the ancient times, like, a full quiver, you're like, three? Give me a break. Four? Come on. Fill up. Some of you are like, really? Like, I got three, so I can't say much here. Like, a hundred children would be a sign of immense blessing, You can have it all. At the end of the day, listen, live many years, thousands of years even. You could live a life and have everything this world has to offer and still wind up unsatisfied. That's what he's saying. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. He's talking about the stillborn child here, by the way. Yet it finds, listen to this, here's the difference between the man who lives 2,000 years and finds no satisfaction in the blessings that he has and the gifts that God has given him Listen, he has no rest, but the stillborn, listen, who has not lived a day in this life, has not had to go through toil in this world, has not had to go through the pains and the problems, has not had to try and seek satisfaction in anything else. Listen, that, that person finds rest immediately in the presence of God. For those of you who have stillborn children, who have lost children, listen, this is hope, by the way. Because That child is finding rest in God. And here's the point. Listen, the point is this. That's what we're supposed to find rest in. That's where satisfaction is ultimately found. You live 
thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good because, listen, because you have not found your rest in God. Jesus in John 6, 27, listen to these words. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Listen to words to the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, what is it, church? Come on, rest. Rest. You're thirsty. You're not calling to your heart this morning. Listen, your heart is thirsty this morning. Your heart is hungry this morning. It is craving this morning satisfaction, and rightly so. God has put that in your heart. Now, here's the question. What are you running to? Where are you running to to find that satisfaction? Jesus says, come to me. Come drink of my well. Come eat of my bread. Let me fill you up to overflowing. Let your heart be satisfied in me, the greatest gift of all. That's what Paul says in Philippians 4, 12 through 13, doesn't he? I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't care what situation I am. I can be satisfied because I have everything I need. I have Jesus Christ. That's the answer for some of you this morning in your sin struggle. You're trying to be satisfied by your sin. You're running to your sin to be satisfied. How's that working for you? For some of you, you're running to legalism. You're beating yourself up. You're trying to make yourself somebody you're not. You're hiding your sin. How's that working for you? It's not satisfying your soul. Run to Jesus. Find the freedom and forgiveness that he offers. Find the strength and sustenance he provides. Find the power that he gives to you through the Holy Spirit. Find satisfaction for your soul in Christ. You say, what does that look like when I'm Christ-satisfied? Give, give, me, give me something that it looks like. Okay, if, if I'm Christ-serving, I'm generous. Well, then what happens if I'm Christ-satisfied? Here it is. I express more gratitude. The person who is filled with gratitude is a person who has learned to be satisfied in Christ. Because they're not complaining about what they don't have. Do you, get, do you see this? The lack of gratitude is because we desire more. We don't have what we believe we deserve. We complain, we complain, we complain. We want, we want, we want. We're never satisfied. But here is a person who is satisfied, a person who is filled with so much gratitude. I have everything I need. I have all I need and more. I have Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful. I don't deserve any of this. Gratitude. Thirdly, note this, I must be Christ-focused. I must be Christ-focused, content with what I have. Seven through nine, note this. He says, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage is the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. And the call here to fix your eyes on what is true and real rather than a wandering appetite that is never satisfied. Again, this is the idea of contentment. Listen to how Jesus says this in Luke 12, 15 through 21. He says this, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Here it is. Listen, this is so important. So is the one who lays up treasures for who? Himself and is not rich toward God. Wow. This is... This is powerful, profound truth that pierces right to our hearts. Here we're called to have our eyes fixed on things above, not on things below, where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. Is your heart, is your life fixed on self or Jesus? That's the question here. What does this look like when when I have my my gaze focused on Jesus? What does this look like? Here's, Here's the statement here. I want more glory. Not for me, for him. Eyes that are fixed on self are consumed with glory for me. Eyes that are fixed and focused on Christ, listen, are consumed with his glory. All you can think about is, God, I want your glory to abound. I want to see your glory. I want more of you, God. I want more of you in my life. I want more of you consuming my thoughts and my, pow- my energies, my affections. I want more of you. Show me your glory. And lastly, I must be Christ-sufficient. It ends with these words, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Hear, Hear the thought here, you're not God. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? You can't argue with God about your condition, about your circumstances. You don't know better than God. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Here's the answer. God. Not you. And so rather than looking to yourself as being sufficient, you trying to control your circumstances and your life and the outcomes. Look to God and let him be the one who is sovereignly in control. You don't need all the answers. You don't need to tell God what you think you deserve. In fact, you don't have a right. You don't get to complain about what you don't have. Gaining more will not be sufficient for you with this kind of an attitude. Only trusting God is sufficient. That's the point. In Mark 8, 34, Jesus says this, and calling to the crowd, to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a prophet What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Listen, this is about having faith in Christ. It's allowing him to be the sufficient one. And the person 
who has faith in Christ to be sufficient, the person who acknowledges that He is sovereign over all, listen, here's, here's what you see in your life. I see more grace. I see more grace. Everything I have is grace. Every gift I've been given is grace. The life I live is grace. The breath I breathe is, breathe is grace. I deserve nothing, yet He has given me everything. He is sufficient for me, and I will follow Him. We should all want to get rich quick. We all yearn for something more. Even the enjoyment of wealth and possessions here and now, listen, produces a yearning for something greater and something better. Getting rich is the goal, church, rich towards God. Christ can and must replace self so that you can enjoy true riches. And if you are not satisfied with Christ, what he provides will never be enough for you. If you are not focused on Christ... Whatever else you focus on will never be enough for you. If Christ is not sufficient for you, nothing in this life will be sufficient enough for you. So here's the question, and here's the answer. Is Christ enough for you? Is Christ enough for you? Father, we pray that our hearts would be gripped by your grace, by your generosity towards us, Lord, in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we be gripped with gratitude, Lord, for what you've so lavishly given to us, the riches that are ours in Christ, that, Lord, you have adopted us as sons and daughters. You have brought us, Lord, to saving faith. And, God, I pray that you would grip us with a, a stronger delight for your glory, a longing and a craving for more of you, to be satisfied, fully satisfied in you and in you alone. God, would you protect us from the greed and the covetousness that exists in all of our sinful hearts, Would you lead us away, Lord, from wanting more of this world? And would you lead us towards, Lord, wanting more of you and enjoying more of who you are and what you've given to us in Christ? God, make us a people who can say with clarity and conviction that Christ is enough for us. And may our lives display, Lord, in the way we live, the way we sacrifice, the way we walk and talk, the the things we enjoy and cherish and worship, may our lives scream out to this world, Lord, that Christ is not only enough for us, but Christ can be enough for them too. Help us in this, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.